Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Kathy Joseph from Fiddlehead Cellars. It's April 8th, 2021. Kathy's joining us via Zoom and uh, Tia Elder is also here on the Zoom with us. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate this. Let's start with the most important question, uh, which is why wine? <laughs> well, um, it wasn't my plan early on. Um, I uh, was extremely studious as a kid. Um, and I learned early on that I was great at science and I loved science and I loved exploring the field. And uh, I had a great family friend who actually helped me see the path to science as being an art form. And um, that it wasn't uh, angular and strictly black and white, but that there were lots of decisions that you made along the way and lots of room for um, differing opinions and personalities. And um, it, was, it, it was exciting to, to um, kind of think that I could be a real person and, and be involved in the scientific world. And the you know, first thought was that medicine was a great way to go, but I was always questioning myself. And so my uh, college career was based more on diversifying within the sciences. So um, I uh, grew up in the Midwest outside of Chicago um, in Evanston, home of Northwestern University. And then I went to college not far away, but uh, to Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, I, I actually <laughs> thought you're supposed to go to college to learn what you didn't know. And I studied a, a liberal arts program that I was disenchanted with and dropped out and worked at Crate and Barrel, which I loved the selling aspect there. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was like fantastic. And then went back to um, work in sciences and, you know, was loaded up with physics and PCHEM and biochem and, um, and uh, lots of labs. So I was up early and stayed up late. And, and um, I worked so hard that I was afraid that if I had it into the medical world that I would miss out on a certain socializing aspect um, that I felt was important in my life. Um, but I, I armed myself with courses so I could move into soil science or food science or really any kind of science, flavor science, or um, and little did I know that uh, wine was a field of study at the time. And um, it, uh, my dad pointed out to me, hey, there's this place, uh, you know, out in California, a school, um, uh, where you can learn about uh, enology and viticulture. And I remember saying, oh, dad, I want a real job. <laughs> and, um, you know, I felt that that was just too easy. And, um, you know, 
I, I wanted to be practical about my um, kind of, um, you know, what I was going to do next in life. And I, I, I decided that if I was going to get involved in the wine world, that I wanted to incorporate hands-on activity with um, uh, the educational aspect, which I strongly believed in. And so um, I actually took a job out in Sonoma at um, Simi Winery when Zelma Long was there and um, wanted to just see what it was like. It turned out it, the position was, was actually in a closed tasting room where I did VIP tours, but it was being in this environment that I found to be fascinating. And I had simultaneously applied to graduate school at Davis. Um, and, uh, you know, it was this early interaction with Selma Long that I attribute to expanding my, or uh, to really thinking outside the box um, and, and teaching me the importance of taste and how you taste and how um, sugar and acid characters in a beverage interact with each other. And, you know, I just gobbled this stuff up and I actually became, you know, an expert to teach the people who were coming as visitors. Um, so I did a lot of reading and a lot of um, meeting with, with uh, her team. Ultimately um, was accepted to the graduate school at Davis. Um, and I was studying under Corneo I never graduated, um, mostly because I started working in the industry and loved it so much that I couldn't find purpose in wanting to finish my <laughs> research project, which was very, very interesting. But I was working by that time at very small wineries that were, you know, almost 24-7 jobs. And I didn't mind that, but it, it kind of pulled me a little away from, from the school aspect. Um, but going to Davis, um, I learned um, uh, a, a wealth of information, but most importantly, I learned how to apply my biochemistry and microbiology to the wine world. It was a very easy segue for me. Um, and, um, you know, I kind of liked that. I, I, I found it fascinating. And I, what, what I was researching at Davis was um, yeast nutrition. And um, we were looking at biotin deficiencies and uh, H2S formation, and it was pretty interesting stuff. But every fall, I took off and worked at a different um, local winery so that I could get that hands-on um, connection. So after CME, I worked at Joseph Phelps in St. Helena and I was predominantly working in the cellar there. Um, and it was great. It was with these guys who had worked there for, you know, 10 and 15 years. So it was mostly men, but I, you know, had no problem with, you know, learning how to drive the forklift and learning how to hook up a pump and which pump to use and, and making wine with walkie talkies. And um, it, it was guys in the trenches, um, which was, was really fantastic. Um, but at the same time, um, I became very good friends with the winemaker and assistant winemaker and laboratory person. So I was involved in some of the things. And 
you know, I love that part too. <laughs> it was so I really felt like I was um, taken under the wing of um, so Walter Shug was there and Craig Williams was there and it was just a great family. Um, let's see. Then I think I moved on to um, to uh, Long Vineyards, which was a very small property who um, in outside of St. Helena also. And I worked a lot, not only in the vineyards, um, learning how to sample um, fruit, but I learned how to set up a laboratory and then um, work at a winery on a very small scale. So tasting barrels. And um, so Zelma was the consulting winemaker um, at that time. And so we would sit down and, and discuss the plan for harvest and tasting some of the barrels and about cross-contamination, just very practical things that I found incredibly interesting. Um, and through that position, I was introduced to Bob Long's um, uh, best buddy, Bob Coda, who had a small winery up in Calistoga. And, um, you know, he was kind of like me, a, an ambitious, um, think outside the box uh, winemaker that never had enough money or enough personnel. And he loved having people like me who just wanted to be a sponge and soak up everything. And so um, he was, you know, quite uh, brilliant at business. And he gave me incredible opportunities at a very, very young stage of my life. And so um, I, I participated from day one in everything, um, which including um, developing winemaking styles and um, expanding um, the program on varietals that we were making, um, I became the winemaker and consulting winemaker to all the growers that we custom crushed for. Um, I tasted on panels um, for competitions for 15 years. And, um, you know, good for me when he was going through a divorce, I was kind of thrown out into the field to learn marketing. Um, and it's not necessarily something you know how to do, even if you take a marketing class to um, communicate to distributors, to talk pricing, to develop style and finesse, to learn what to wear at what time, how to conduct yourself at wine dinners. I, I mean, I, I was doing this when I was quite young and it was exciting to me. Um, so um, so I, I loved what I did every minute of the day. I loved the diversity. Um, and I had um, a lot of teachers in different aspects. So I was truly staged to set up my own winery. Um, and one of the other things that kind of helped me focus on a direction was back in 86, when I was traveling for Dakota, I bumped into uh, Stephen Carey, who at that time, um, you know, was owner um, of Cary Oregon Wines and essentially representing um, Oregon wineries around the world. And, um, you know, he was a, 
interesting guy, but he loved sharing um, the importance of Oregon wines and um, uh, the diversity of Oregon wines. And um, more importantly than uh, um, falling in love with Oregon wines, I fell in love with Pinot Noir. And so I was in a position to taste a lot of wines and um, I, when I worked at Bacota, made one very bad Pinot Noir, but it was such a great learning ground. And I learned that you don't make Pinot Noir like Cabernet and you use different tanks, you taste and pick differently, you mix the vats differently. And um, to make a bad Pinot on someone else's time, you know, what better education was there? And it was great fruit. It was Carnero's fruit from a great vineyard. Um, but I learned my lessons very quickly. And um, um, I, I, at some point in my life, felt that I had peaked at what I could gain from Pakoda and felt that it was time to um, focus and you know I did something many um, new young winemakers don't do which is I wrote a business plan and I interviewed all the people I knew um, who were in business I read a lot of books I took a couple of courses I tried to figure it out and you know I did giant projections on my Apple IIe computer you know it had dot matrix on paper piles and piles and ultimately I carried it to a CPA and I said you know I can't integrate it um, you know the years and um, but but in 1988 is when I was was planning what I was going to be doing for the future and um, I decided that I would be a small winery and my projections gave me lots of flexibility, um, but I first decided what I wanted to make. And so I decided I needed to do something differently from, from the other wineries I had been working for. And so I knew I had to create my niche and that niche was going to be um, Pinot Noir and Sauvignon Blanc because I felt that they were amazing partners in a textural standpoint from a worldwide perspective, not necessarily how we were making those wines domestically, but the elegance that could be created in both wines. But also they were underdog varietals at the time that I got started. And um, there were um, grapes grown in the wrong places. Um, there was the wrong equipment that was being used. Um, but I felt that I was on a quest to find areas where I could make my mark. And I didn't have a huge um, pouch of family money. I didn't, um, uh, you know, I needed to be, I, I, I wanted to go to the right places. I knew my wines needed to be place driven and I wanted to make wines that were respectful of the place but I needed to create some diversity. And yet I wanted focus at the same time so that I could get really good at what I was doing. So the business plan included making Pinot Noir um, not just in California and not just in Oregon, um, but to simultaneously make Pinot Noir in both places because um, I had tasted 
enough wines from wineries that I I really felt the potential was extreme. There was lots of bad wine out there, um, but there was, you know, you had to find enough that you could really, really believe in. And I didn't, you know, by working in two states, you're a little less blinded by, by your immediate environment. I felt that um, I, I really, um, I don't know, I, I think I was more discriminating about what I could really do successfully. And so um, I didn't want to diversify by working with the vineyard down the, down the street or even in the adjacent Appalachian, but that I could accomplish working with Pinot Noir in um, uh, two different states where in Oregon, in general, the harvest or vintage started about a month later. And I was very adamant that I needed to be on site to be successful making my wines. And so for 15 vintages, I actually first worked in Santa Barbara County, and then I relocated up to the Willamette Valley, and then, you know, managed my entire year commuting between the two places. Um, and fortunately, I had a home in Davis, which became kind of a halfway point. I could manage an office there, but also I could stay connected to a lot of my North Coast friends for resources. Um, Sonoma, Alexander Valley, they great um, um, resources of information. Um, how do you do something? Who would you recommend? What has been your... Um, approach to solving a problem or I mean it was it was fantastic and and I continued to taste in a wine group in Napa with college friends for for many years to come um, but I didn't want to make just Pinot Noir so the way I diversified was to work with Sauvignon Blanc and Santa Barbara County offered this very unique geography that um, has a transverse valley where the mountain ranges were turned by shifting plate tectonics millions of years ago. And so in a very um, uh, a, a geographically small area, um, we had a definition of a very cool climate, but 30 miles away was a significantly warmer climate, like 30 degrees warmer. And the excitement um, additionally was that it wasn't just warm, but it had access to fog um, that would roll over the hills because of the unique um, coastline of Southern California. So where we are, we actually have water to the west and water to the south. And so um, this is, you know, when I started working in the area, it was way before we had um, sub-Appalachians, but San Inez Valley and Santa Maria Valley were the two Appalachians. And then since um, uh, San Inez Valley has been defined further by Santa Rita Hills and Ballard Canyon and Los Olivos District and Happy Canyon, which is where my Sauvignon Blanc came from, the, the more easterly district. Um, just to mention fast forwarding um, or, or let me back up a little bit about the business plan didn't know where I would end up because it was all based on how much money I could raise. 
And so I wrote a business plan to be a 3000 case winery where I would custom crush at someone else's facility or a 6000 case winery where I would custom crush at someone's facility or a 6000 case winery where um, I um, own, own the, the, the winery. And then each of those renditions included a vineyard aspect where I would own a vineyard or not own a vineyard. Um, and so it was a lot of scenarios that was more or less based on my financial ability. Um, so I started small, 3000 Keys Winery, um, where I custom crushed both in Oregon and in California. And then I ended up being a 6,000 case winery where I operate in um, leased, uh, leased facility. And I own a hundred acre vineyard um, that um, where the ground was purchased in 96. And um, I became not only a supplier of my own grapes, but a seller of grapes to other wonderful winemakers. And it enabled me to diversify my portfolio a little bit where, you know, in recent history, I planted Gruner Veltliner as a kind of a third wine that I've been making since 2014. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. I do everything. I have a small staff. I'm involved. I live on the property that is now called Fiddlesticks Vineyard in the Santa Rita Hills, located opposite um, a historic vineyard called Sanford and Benedict Vineyard. Um, and um, I have continuously made Oregon wines from 1991 uh, through uh, 2018, actually. And um, I actually had a little lull and when I had no access to Santa Barbara Pinot, which is what um, pushed me into looking uh, to develop my own vineyard. Uh, so 2004 to, let's see, it was 1994 to 2000, no, 1994 to 1999. Um, I did not make, uh, I have to, I, I was going to say I didn't make, um, I didn't make California Pinot, but that's not true. Somewhere in the middle there, I, I, I did purchase grapes. So um, but the Oregon history, which we should get to, is, is interesting because I started out working just with Yamhill Valley Vineyard Fruit, um, and that was in 1991, and I made it at Yamhill Valley Vineyards, and I can't recall, I think I might have purchased a ton of fruit, and um, it reminded me of my old days at Pakoda where I, I made it all wrong. <laughs> Um, I borrowed a, a, a plastic tank that I um, punched down probably three or four or five times a day. I'm not sure. Um, but it was such a cold winter that I um, was allowing the vat to ferment on its own, which actually, actually took about a month. And so, though, <laughs> as you can imagine, the wine was so extracted. Um, it was never released, but it was um, a phenomenal learning experience. It was really great. Um, I don't regret it at all. It was bottled and labeled and never released. And so 1992, I um, added in 
1991, I added in my Oregon production and then my Sauvignon Blanc production. And then in 1992, um, I added in um, Seven Springs as a vineyard source. Um, and in, I, I wish I have better records because my labels <laughs> don't tell me, but somewhere between 92 and 99, I additionally was working with um, Elton fruit and then Canary Hills fruit. Um, and um, it was very exciting. Elton, um, I was working in the oldest block, which was planted in 83. It was opposite where Ken Wright was getting fruit. And actually he purchased Canary Hills Vineyard, which is when, you know, I totally, or, or he might've actually scaled up and then purchased it, but it's when I lost access to Canary Hills. So over the early 2000s, um, I worked with a number of other properties. So it was Elton Seven Springs and Yamhill Valley Vineyards for a number of years. And then in 2002, um, I kind of looked at my records. Um, I worked with Lumen Vineyard. And in 2003, I actually added um, a Loro and Mumtazi Vineyard. Um, and then, you know, there was just a lot of great experimentation where ultimately in 04, I was backed off to just Elton and Aloro. But it was great because I worked with a lot of Yola Hills fruit. I worked with a lot of growers, organic and non-organic and biodynamic, of course, with Mumtazi. Um, I made some single barrel, barrel selections, both from Elton and Seven Springs from the very early years, like um, 2000, um, 2002, I have Elton barrel select, um, Seven Springs, I have an 01. Um, and I have a great library of wines. So I still taste these to this day. It's, it's really wonderful. Um, but my relationship um, with Aloro um, developed when I um, ran into David Namarnik at a, um, a conference um, uh, uh, at the Steamboat winemakers conference and I loved how the fruit was showing and he his brand was not developed yet at the time and so I actually started buying exclusively from Aloro probably 2008 forward um, and I found lots of overlap in our missions and style and what we do in the vineyard um, both sustainably certified um, clones that we had planted um, uh, the choice of irrigation or not, um, how we trained and trellised. Um, th uh, um, there was a lot of overlap in philosophy. And so um, there was a lot of respect. Um, and um, I think the wines that I made from that property are, are just gorgeous. Um, the interesting thing, um, perspective that I'll give is, uh, um, I think it's important to this interview to share with um, everyone that um, one of the great things that I think I offered um, by working in both places was my objectivity. 
And I didn't get blinded by believing one place was the best or superior. And yet I still wanted to um, make wines that reflected their roots. And I'm often asked, how do the wines taste differently or what's the difference? And the history of Santa Barbara County in the North Willamette Valley are, are uh, somewhat parallel in terms of when the pioneers got started and soil types and clonal options and clonal research and um, and uh, um, I was always excited to really and truly equally promote um, the the virtues and benefits of um, my Oregon production side by side with where I invested in land, um, my Santa Rita Hills production. And um, so, um, uh, you know, I never wanted one to overshadow the other. And I think that, of course, you bring in Burgundy and you bring in, you know, down under um, New Zealand. And, and um, I always wanted to talk about Pinot Noir um, as, as diversity umbrella of, of excellence and also trueness to the varietal and, you know, the things that it needed to be. Um, uh, and yet, um, you know, um, differences and why, you know, I'm always promoting why you don't want to be just drinking one wine from one winemaker um, from one place um, and that to expand one's palate, even within the category of um, Pinot Noir is so rewarding and so exciting that you can have one or two or three open in a given meal and get um, satisfaction in different ways from each wine. So that a, a big fat wine isn't the only way to make wine and a lean tart wine isn't the only way to make wine, but it has to be Pinot Noir and recognizable as Pinot Noir. Um, so that has always been my base philosophy. Um, maybe you want to ask some questions for me to <laughs> direction. I, I could just sit here and listen to you lecture all day. This is great. I would I would pay for this class. So, but if I have to ask questions, I can I can ask questions. Um, I'm curious. You, you mentioned uh, that people often ask you about you know best or or, or, or differences, but I'm curious about you. You had your you had your education in Davis. You had Willamette Valley. You had the sort of the, the Southern California. So you're in kind of three different wine regions simultaneously there for a long time. Tell me about um, the differences in 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 the kind of the the advancement. You, you mentioned that Santa, the Santa Barbara area and, and Willamette Valley are kind of similar uh, on their trajectories. But I'm curious about like in terms of the science, in terms of the marketing, in terms of the winemaking, uh, are, mm -hmm. or the differences mm -hmm. that you were seeing as you're going back and forth between the industries. And what what was kind of your initial impression of the Willamette Valley as compared to where you had been before? So um, one of the similarities is um, sort of diversity of agriculture. It's one of the beauties of the of both areas. Um, and the fact that there can be walnut growers and row crop farmers and um, uh, vineyards and fruit trees. And, you know, I, I, I love that diversification, but 
You know, I never, I, I always felt that there are differences. Um, obviously, there's a lot more rainfall up north. Um, the winters are longer and harsher. Um, and sometimes that impacts choices that are made in the vineyard. But I mean, we're all impacted by global warming to a certain degree. And because I felt that um, flexibility was my mantra a little bit, I always claimed that, um, well, Santa Barbara vintages tend to be more predictable because of a more moderate weather pattern. And I, I felt that what helped me make um, better Oregon wines um, every year was was to be flexible in my, um, my, my, my viticulture and winemaking choices, that I didn't always pick at the same time. And I didn't always try to make a certain kind of wine, but in a little year or a cooler year where you picked later, I, I, I knew that I would be making a literal, littler wine that maybe I released a little bit later. Um, and um, so my California wine, my, you know, it, California has so many wine districts, as does Oregon, but it's really comparing. And now North Willamette Valley has so many subdivisions. Um, and I was, became very akin to the Chehala Mountains, but it's kind of like Chehala Mountains versus Santa Rita Hills. You know, that, that is really what we're talking about because California has such diversity that you just cannot generalize um, um, any commentary um, about the wines here, uh, especially Pinot Noir that's so influenced by where it's grown. But so, so that's what I'm referring to when I talk to the two areas. Um, so um, I feel that um, maybe there is that consistency out of my Santa Rita Hills wine because of weather, but it doesn't make it better or worse, of course. Um, I think um, in terms of marketing, I think um, Oregon has done a hands down much better job. And part of it is the um, community that rallied together, but also people like David Adelsheim who, you know, was in the trenches when I was making Oregon wine up in Oregon. Um, and he um, and, and others um, created partnerships with the state and um, government uh, support that I think has um, gone a long, long way and also forged very special overseas relationships. And um, certainly through uh, IPNC and uh, the Steamboat Conference. Um, I, I think those uh, gave, gave Oregon marketing uh, probably the leg up. Um, now, Santa Barbara County um, has simulated or copied even some of the successes of Oregon which, you know, heck, it just adds diversity to the community. Um, but I'd say that I'm surrounded more by a lot of um, wonderful, unique personalities 
who have a little harder time rallying together, you know. <laughs> and I would say where Oregon maybe embraced um, wineries that weren't as fabulous as others in part of the community, you know, I feel it's a little bit more um, uh, one man for themselves uh, in my uh, community in, in uh, Santa Barbara County. Um, uh, and, and so I'd say that um, marketing has not been as, uh, um, I, I would say there's room for improvement is I guess what I would say. Uh, you, know, you, you know, you have to look things in, in the right light. It's, it's an extraordinary district. It makes, it grows great grapes. Um, my property um, is so amazing because in extreme vintages, I seem to be a little bit buffered. I am right in the heart of the Santa Rita Hills, but on the Southern Avenue, which is Santa Rosa Road. Um, and uh, it's, I, I mean, it's beautiful. It's 10 miles from the ocean. So we get direct ocean breezes every single day. We're cooled by the fog that rolls in in the evenings. And, um, and the great thing too is that because I sell grapes, I learn from other winemakers who are making wine from my fruit and, and many who are, uh, I, I neglected to mention the name of the vineyard is called Fiddlesticks with an X, Fiddlesticks Vineyard. And so, um, you know, obviously it's on my labels, but it also um, is on the labels of a lot of other great winemakers. Um, uh, and I haven't sold grapes across state lines, but especially last year where a lot of Napa folks were hit with fires, um, uh, you know, um, I expanded my distribution um, beyond the handful of Napa winemakers I was working with. Um, but it is, it is really a, a amazing district. Um, what else can I tell you? So um, you mentioned, well, pandemic wise. Uh, uh, um, so, so, you know, I would say agriculture doesn't stop when there's a pandemic, <laughs> you know, you still gotta farm the fields and you grow the grapes and, um, but um, it is a revolving door on who your customers are going to be and who you can sell to. Um, and part of being a grape grower, you know, you're influenced by years that are big years, the next year people want to buy less, um, but also, um, and, and years when you are affected by natural disasters, you might be able to sell more. Um, you know, I've always embraced selling to um, both established winemakers and up and coming winemakers because of all the people who kind of gave me my break. And I've never wanted to judge the quality of someone's wine by tasting it, but I judge it by their, their effort, I think, and their, their mission and their goals. Um, so I've liked to support that over time. Um, the, the big differences are really in the winery end. Um, I would say for pandemic, I lost all my national distribution, essentially. 
Um, and most of my wines would end up in white tablecloth restaurants, which um, closed down for a long period of time and were, um, you know, some operating to go. Of course, we're licensed to sell wine to go, but you know, that's a small portion. We, we can do bottles to go. Um, so where that took a huge hit, I would say my direct sales, my online sales, um, you know, uh, you know, definitely grew. And I was always wondering, where did these people come from? And how did they discover Fiddlehead? I mean, <laughs> you know, I am small. And um, one of my personal challenges has always been to be able to market myself on my um, short um, budget uh, so that, you know, I've had to sort of learn social media myself and learn, um, uh, it, you know, just how to promote myself and how to connect with the right people. Of course, we had the local boost of sideways being filled here. And um, to carry that further, I uh, was good friends with the props person. And so Fiddlehead landed in a lot of movies, um, not just sideways, but the kids are all right and the affair and the Sopranos and more recently Goliath season three was filmed at Fiddlesticks Vineyard. Um, and I still get calls for location shots and also placement. So, I mean, it's pretty cool. That's cool. And it's, it's sort of the personal marketing that I embrace. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we haven't been able to have events. And so that was always a huge way to spread the word for me. Um, and only recently have we been able to open a, a tasting patio. Um, which in fact has been good for us because it's about three times the size of my tasting room. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm trying to make it work for me. Um, and, you know, I'm always looking for what's the next thing I can add. So now we have music on Sundays and um, we have these cool to-go glasses that are um, sort of logoed with, um, with uh, seasonal or event reminders, um, you know, green for Earth Day, or I don't know, um, Easter colors, or it, it, it's um, kind of, a, uh, again, trying to think outside the box and do something my neighbors aren't doing. Um, you know, I have to have to admit that some of my best ideas I steal from other people, but it's not necessarily people in the wine industry, it's when I see a great ad that someone else has done or a great promotion um, or I love the, something is eye-catching, you know, um, it helps me design things for myself. Um, so again, I try to be very open about what will help bring me to the next level. Um, so the pandemic, um, obviously my total gross sales have gone down but my direct to consumer sales have gone up. Um, and um, I would say, you know, we've probably grown our wine club a little bit uh, included in our direct to consumer sales. Um, but it's not enough to sustain. I've made a lot more wine than, you know, I, my business plan was set up on having um, wholesale distribution. 
And so I'm trying to convert and also, you know, rebuild that. And I think we all have to know that everyone is not going to be um, opening up at, with a very high end price point, which is, you know, many of my wines, well, I would say my wines aren't in the low end price point, but um, some of my barrel select wines were pricier and well worth the value. But we, um, you know, need to rethink pricing. Um, and sometimes I've offered um, some great discounts to my consumers that offset the discounts that we would have given uh, to the wholesale um, to support um, what they needed to do to distribute the wines. And so, so I've, I've tried to make it a benefit to everybody. So I want to I want to back up for a second and talk about marketing because you you've talked about marketing kind of throughout and I'm curious you you mentioned early lessons learned in marketing uh, uh, right down to to how to market and, and what to wear tell tell me about some of those lessons and, and learning to market yourself and what you what you kind of gathered from places you had worked and and and, and were ready to bring from to the from to the beginning of Fiddlehead and what you had to kind of learn along the way. So I think it's important to learn to talk the language. Um, in other words, when someone's asking you about pricing, you have to know your audience. Like, are you talking to a consumer or to a distributor or to a, a, a restaurant or wine shop? Um, so um, knowing a pricing structure, um, is important and you know how did I learn that I kind of learned it by doing it and teaching my staff how to do it and so the price isn't the price isn't the price and if you're going to quote any price just quote a suggested retail price because that gives you the greatest flexibility on um, on offering different tiers um, a discounted price for whatever reason um, you know, you have to learn about warehousing and trucking and all of that stuff. And so there's a lot of costs that, that um, I think you need to pay attention to. Um, when I started out, um, because I was based in, in Southern California, or South Central California, more correctly, I felt that to get um, my wines accessible to distributors, I engaged a Napa Valley warehouse. I actually have several warehouses, but I felt that that was really important um, to have access to distributor pickup. Um, sounds crazy, but, um, and it's, it's kind of what I do today, but the challenge then is to how to separate your inventory because there's a cost of transportation to get it there and there's a cost of warehousing it and you don't want to move it around a lot. Um, uh, I'm trying to, to think a little bit about events. There's um, distributor events, um, trade tastings, and there are consumer events. And you have to really learn when to talk about um, pH and TA if someone cares about that, which you don't start out with that. Um, I don't. I instruct my team not even to talk about this wine is barrel fermented. I, I want people to talk about the 
texture and the structure of wine and the, you know, what foods it goes with because of its texture and wines that they might be familiar with that are similar like my wine. And so I would encourage people to expand your own palate and know who your competition is um, on a worldwide basis because people are going to say, well, what do you think of this wine? Or how does your wine compare to that wine? And if you don't have answers, if you make up answers, um, you are quickly discovered. Uh, especially if you, if, if they are smart, you know, they will call you on, on the answer. So um, I think you need to be, um, I, I like people who can talk the language, but who know what they're talking about. For instance, the importance of filtration, the importance of fining, when you would choose to do one over the other, what natural wine means, um, what uh, the difference between biodynamic, organic and sustainable, uh, uh, growing and winemaking is um, because there are, are big differences. And um, I, I like to promote how in our sustainability program, you know, we have a very important component of education of our farm workers and we uh, manage our riparian perimeter and we monitor water usage. It's not just about the chemicals, um, which is restricted but some chemicals can be used judiciously. Um, um, it's all about the big picture. And um, so, so again, I like broad thinking and not just the one way, <laughs> you know, you should only buy my wine because I'm biodynamic and I have um, sheep in my, you know, who, who poop in my vineyard. <laughs> I mean, it, that has goodness to it. Um, and, and I try, you know, everyone decides for themselves. I hate to be critical about the horn that you have to bury. Um, but, um, I, you know, listen, if, if it works for you, then great. But I think everyone needs to, to know the choices and pick the ones that work. And I think me, like many of my peers, we care about the future. And so we care about an environment for our children, a safe, you know, when you talk about sustainability, you need a sustainable business plan. Um, and so um, um, I don't have heirs. And so, you know, you have to think about the future of your property. Um, uh, you know, I've always claimed that um, I'm, you know, will likely sell at some point and creating those relationships along the way is something you need to know how to do. Um, um, if, if it's for your kids, you know, get them involved early um, and make them work at someone else's winery because um, I, I think that, that that's even a better place to learn. And like Tia, I think doing a little bit of everything is is um, in in different parts of the world will give you different mentor approaches. It's super important, and so you could love a person, but it's not you know their way isn't the only way, <laughs> really. Um, so um, um, more uh, to address your marketing question. Um, uh, 
I don't know. I think thinking about the details is important. You know, are you meeting someone in a park? Um, are you meeting in a three-star restaurant? Um, I tend to want to overdress to impress, but not inappropriately. Um, uh, I like, uh, I dress, um, I want respect. And I try to think again, um, what is appropriate for my audience? Um, and, and remember, there's always going to be a mixed audience out there. So I never assume people know anything. So oftentimes I'll throw out some winemaking term and right after it, give the definition, just so someone doesn't have to raise their hand and say, what does that mean? And embarrass themselves. So you have to learn technique to communicate. Seriously, I just like, and again, verbiage is, um, you know, some words just sound wrong or are bad or, um, but, but again, things have changed. You know, some people will say, this is a badass wine. And I might say, this is a rock star wine. Or you might say, this is a, you know, knock you around your feet wine. Or then there's the one that will say it's got, you know, fine tannins and good acidity. And, you know, <laughs> and, you know there's just a time and a place that you want to share all of it is what's your time frame so I always tell people you know you, you you have to sort of what are what is your presentation and I always tell people when they're presenting the wine um you want engagement you want to tell people something that they didn't just read that they came to the table and knew about um uh that they uh you know uh you might you might talk about what the logo means um, I like visuals. I tell people always have the bottle of wine in your hand when you're um, presenting it. So there's a visual attraction. Um, just one other note, you know, one of the things I had to learn, um, this was my old label. Let's see if I can do that right there. And um, in probably, I don't know, 2012, I was prompted to do a label change. So I don't know if you can see that I sort of changed my logo um, for my estate wine. Um, stay right there for one second. But I had an issue with visibility in a dark restaurant. And so this label tended to be more legible and pop on the shelf. Um, you know, I tend to have different wine names that I think are really important. And so, you know, you, you, you need a story. Um, and so I, I remember when I was looking for what should I call my winery? I made two vintages, 89 and 90. Um, and then I had to say, what am I gonna call this? And um, I remember I told a, a woman that I went to graduate school with um, I told her it was going to be a fiddlehead. And she said, that's a terrible name. You should change it. <laughs> and of course, I had just spent two years pulling everyone. And I felt like I hit on the right one because my story was that it's actually named for the coiled frond of a, a fern, the tip of a fern. And it sort of fed into my um, scientific background, taking botany 
And I was actually gardening in a fern bed when I went, that's it, that's it. I was so excited. But it's very melodic and memorable. And it's actually considered a delicacy um, in, in uh, food. So the food and wine combination. And, um, and, you know, a lot of people think that it's associated with the fiddle, which gets back to that botanical term. So it creates a connection because people say, oh, do you play the fiddle? And so after many years of saying, no, it's, it's not um, musical or music related, I then created one of my wine clubs and called it Stradivarius Club, just as a play on the whole concept. It's how my brand just evolved. Um, so naming a brand is difficult. Um, there are trends. Um, I have some place names like 728 um, and Oldsville, Oldsville being the road off of which Hill Valley Vineyards was located. And in fact, I made my first 15 vintages of my Oregon wine in Oregon. But when I built my winery, I learned that with refrigerated trucks, I could very comfortably transport fruit, but my requirement to myself was to be on site to decide when I was going to harvest and also to supervise the harvesting, which sometimes was a different time. So my participation at the growing level didn't change, but where I was processing, I could then process at my own facility with my own equipment on my own time and keep me in one place throughout the year, which was a better management tool of my wines. Um, so again, that was a process of how am I going to do this? Um, so anyway. I'm, a little, I'm a little surprised you didn't just learn the fiddle so you could say, yes, that is, that is, that is because of the fiddle. It seems like right. something you would, do. you would just like, yeah, of course, I play the fiddle. Um, no, I I would not be so bold, but I did have so so um, my vineyard is located at a, a very specific mile marker. It's mile marker seven point two eight on Santa Rosa Road. So um, my. My, my, one of my estate wines is called 728. And then we created an event called Drink 728 on 728. And we created another event called Fiddle Fest. And so it was my opportunity to have fiddle players come and entertain because I wasn't going to do it. But but you never lose the thread of what you're speaking to. That's, you know, that's part of the continuum. And so part of it is what other brand is going to do to promote it the way I do. Uh, so uh, you, you, I'm curious about, and especially in the early days, getting, getting that kind of logistical setup for, for yourself. So you knew where you were going to be, when you were going to be, and, and you were able to, to get all the things that mattered and and miss how did you make that work what, what how did you, you you must have had to sacrifice some things you must have had to say i i don't need to be here for this but i need to be here for this so tell me about kind of the, the how that scheduling yeah. came to be so um of course it's changed over the years and the first um year uh my 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 production was very small i started by making 100 cases but one of the things that got exciting was that I 
was able to introduce my wine to the buyer for the White House. So my first vintage, 89, went to the White House. And it was like, so I thought I'm on the right track. You know, it was an experiment to see is my vat size right? And is my time on the skins right? And is my, um, you know, bottling choices right? And so, um, so my very first vintage was uh, a Santa Barbara County wine. I actually transported barrels to a Napa facility because it was a little closer to the Davis office that I was maintaining. So that was uh, the first two years. Um, but then um, when I was commuting between the two places, um, I knew that I had to be on site for things like um, shoot thinning and fruit thinning and leaf pulling. You know, it, you, you decide like what's important to you. So your crop level and your crop exposure and, you know, even as you get closer to harvest, netting, you know, are, are the birds attacking your fruit and can you do something about it? Um, so as I mentioned, um, things happened a little later in Oregon so that the timing was off um, or separated by about a month. So I could commute between the two places um, and then become a full-time resident um, during an expanded harvest. You know, I'd be in Oregon maybe I don't know, six weeks full time for just making Pinot Noir from one vineyard. You know, that's a, a fairly um, broad time frame. But I was working with um, a variety of clones, and I did not want to pick them at the same time if they did not ripen at the same time. So those kinds of decisions had to be made. Um, I did successfully maintain an office in Davis, which which allowed me to drive up to the Chehala Mountains um, or fly up. It depended on, do I need my truck or not? Um, <laughs> you know, Southwest was great between Sacramento and Portland. And, and the thing to keep in mind is, you know, as a small business, um, I could call on restaurants along the way, whether I was driving or landing in Portland, you know, you could use the opportunity to create and call on accounts. So um, when I'm driving long distances, I do a lot of planning. Now with, you know, mobile phones, I can, I can set up appointments and, and answer questions on my truck. Um, uh, but uh, uh, <laughs> it's not a an easy life and you have to be um, somewhat organized. And, um, you know, I didn't, you know, I was pretty much by the book. In other words, I always filed reports and got label approval. And um, there's different ways you can bend the rules. Um, and it's not that I didn't never do that, but I tended to <laughs> <laughs> to be more compliant more often than I would say many of the wineries that I see around me. Um, so yeah, I think it's in my nature. I always talk about part of my brain being um, very artistic and then the other part being very 
meticulous. And so, so having those active um, uh, two parts has, I think, helped me manage uh, making wine in distant places. Um, I always said, if you can't do it yourself um, or don't have that talent, that you need to reach out and find someone else to do it. Because when you try to do something you're not good at, it usually fails. Um, so, <laughs> but as a small person, you know, I've had to learn about trademark law and reading of contracts and, um, I, you know, TTB requirements and, um, uh, I mean, even during the pandemic, you know, there have been licensing requirements to allow us to um, uh, expand to an outdoor patio. Um, you know, I've had to figure out how to do that. <laughs> and so my huge challenge, which I think you wanted to hear about at the beginning is um, how much time to spend on doing any one thing, because of course you want to spend the time doing what you love, um, drinking wine with your buddies and, and, and customers, right? But um, there's so much more that you have to do. And so um, my big challenge is not only balance within the business, but with family too. I, I happen to have, my husband is also uh, has a separate business, but I, I do this pretty much solo so that I don't have a partner making management decisions. Um, so that's a big challenge, but you know, you always need to um, find time for your personal life because I think that gives uh, life balance that I may not be um, as good at as I would like to be. <laughs> the challenges of the solo entrepreneur, I suppose. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I just get thrills when people call at eight o'clock at night and say, I just wanted to tell you I'm sitting here enjoying a bottle of your wine and it is so good. And the, the, the number of times that that has happened over the years is so completely gratifying. Um, when I talked about my label change very recently, yesterday, in fact, um, I had a customer who, I, I, because I like age on my wines, I, I just think they evolve into deliciousness. Um, but it meant that when I bottled and labeled my wine and put them into the warehouse, they were labeled. And when I changed my labels, it meant I either had to wait several years um, to get the new label out there or soak labels off. And so to a select group, I actually incurred an added expense to retrieve the wine, soak off labels, reprint labels, relabel, and uh, then sent them out um, because I was eager to communicate this new look. Um, but one of my customers was asking me about why he received the same wine with two labels because he purchased them at uh, two different times on a re-release. And I'm always worried that they're gonna tell me they like the old label better, <laughs> but that's not what happened. This guy was so complimentary that it, it's that feel good moment that you made some really good choices. And um, it's not all, um, you know, we will have failures, but you just have to learn quickly and, and not make the same failure. Um, you know, what do you have to do to change it? And, and that is what I do 
all the time um, in my business, um, I will ask, what can we change so this won't happen again? Not whose fault is it? Uh, you know, uh, blame someone, make them feel terrible, but, but rather, can we fix it or can we make it better? And what do we have to do so it doesn't happen again? And I think those are the important questions to always be asking. So you mentioned that you were, you were from, the, from the beginning, you had a business plan and your plan involved certain size and your plan also involved certain varietals and, and in, multiple, in multiple places. So you were, Sauvignon Blanc and, and, and Pinot Noir are now, of course, uh, very, very popular, uh, much more so. But tell me about kind of being in on the early part of that. And, and did you ever, were you ever concerned that, that the popularity wouldn't be there, that the, 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 the marketability wouldn't be there? And how have you seen kind of the, that shift since you've started making and selling those wines? Great question. Um, yeah, who, you know, I wanted to make those varieties because they were not mainstream. It was more interesting and more exciting and more challenging, but it, it um, I, think of myself also as an educator. And so um, convincing people to change their minds is a wonderful challenge. And someone who tastes a bad Pinot Noir is reluctant to try another one. And so you have to kind of find a way to encourage um, a changed behavior. Um, so I, I felt um, like it was a, a great focus. I felt that it was very doable. I'm not sure I would have guessed it would have, they, these wines would have become as mainstream as they are, <laughs> which is great, good and bad. Um, it means I created more competition for myself. Um, and hence, um, one of the reasons I planted Bruner Veltliner out at my property because it is a lesser known um, variety that you people assume is sweet because it's in a hot bottle, which mine are not. And um, so it's kind of an expansion of the you know early years of why I did what I did. Um, now, um, you know, I'm making a little less wine. My brand kind of settled in around 4,000 cases because that was a comfortable place for me to um, manage all the things that I needed to manage. Um, and well, I, I can't remember the rest of the question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> to totally fine. It was a lot of questions. I, I, I'm sort of curious just about um, you know, if you if you ever doubted your decision to go with those varietals, and then and then as no. you've seen them, as you've seen, them. <laughs> nope, never, never. And I love the question, like, why did you pick? Aren't those funny varieties to go together, um, Sauvignon Blanc and and uh, Pinot Noir? And in in fact, because one is sort of Bordeaux based and one is Burgundy based, and I said, what's the difference with Cab and Chart? when you think about it, <laughs> it's identical, but nobody thinks that way. So again, it gives you um, conversation. Um, but no, I never, I never really doubted it, except, um, you know, now, because the vineyard is so large, um, and because of people's 
buying habits. Um, as I think about, um, are there small blocks to be replanted and what other varietal um, is appropriate um, with weather changes and with, um, with people's palate changes and also, so, um, you know, I think you're, for, for me, I'm always thinking, what would I do? And whether it happens or not, you know, you, things don't happen overnight. And there's, there's a thinking about it, and then a researching it, and then actually doing it. <laughs> and so um, I think my, my thoughts are whether I would do it to make it myself, which is unlikely, but I would do it more to sell to other people because of the saleability um, and the competition of, of you know, fruit that's planted in our area. Um, that is a, a way to sort of make, make yourself different or stand out. So you, you talked earlier about uh, sort of coming in, uh, coming into the industry and working at a lot of different places while you're while you're being educated and, and all of that. And, and I think you mentioned early on, kind of your one of your one of your main experiences. You were in the cellar with a bunch of men who'd been in the industry a long time. You were the young woman uh, with with in, in a fairly male dominated part of the of the industry. Tell me about that for you. Uh, obviously, you were kind of ahead of your time in terms of the solo woman entrepreneur uh, making wine, working in the cellar. Uh, tell me about your experience with that, uh, the, the reaction of people around you as you told them you had this, you're you going to have your own brand and, and make your own wine mm -hmm. and, and, and how you've seen kind of that change as you've, as you've established yourself in the industry. So it's a great question coming off of International Women's History Month, um, because it is so important, I think for gender diversification in all businesses. Um, and I think part of it, you know, what I observed was that women in general were funneled into the laboratory. This is when I was getting my start. Um, and um, women, and in part because of the strength of women, um, people were concerned that how can they roll a barrel or how can they move a pallet or whatever. Um, I, I, um, that, that's the production end. And of course, I never let that phase me at all because I, I mean, again, this is the, you need to get the experience uh, in a very broad scale. And just because most people are going into the lab, that is not, I did, I actually never accepted a laboratory job because I already knew how to do that stuff. I mean, that was part of my education, but I did not know how to hook up a pump. And um, I didn't know how to, you know, screw on a clamp. And, um, uh, you know, knowing about Lee's settling, you know, just some of the things that you look for. Um, so I was very open-minded to be taught, but I also felt it was very important to um, let the people know you're working with that you are capable. So I am always proud to say that I don't need to lift that. I do it the smarter way. I let the the tools and the equipment, you know, a pallet jack is a better way to move something than, than you know, heave it up. 
Um, or there's dollies for garbage cans and kegs. And um, there's a, a lot of tools that you can use to do a actually better job, uh, smart, you know, to work smarter. Um, you don't want to insult anybody, but I think you need to impress upon people that you are capable. And I wanted to be involved in everything. So you want people to teach you and you want to put it into your pool of information and you know decide what you like to do and um, learn more of what you don't know how to do. Um, the other important part is sort of the business part that is, um, uh, you know, how do you learn the business? <laughs> and part of it is working in the office end. Um, work, learn the compliance. Um, I mean, some of the things I know, I just can't believe <laughs> that I, you know, have that wealth of information and it's from doing it because I had to do it. And knowing all the different state compliance rules and knowing about, you know, gallon conversions to milliliter when you're weighing things out in the lab or, um, you know, I just, uh, um, you know, creating DBAs or, um, uh, I mean, there's just so much. Um, I used to teach um, uh, at a, a community college, the business of winemaking. And I had, you know, a three inch binder of the forms that you need to become familiar with. Um, it may not be what you love doing, but you should just really know that they exist. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so, so um, but I started to say learning the business, not just the part, but also the banking, you need to learn about um, financial statements and how, um, you know, there's computer program choices that manage inventory, um, but you know, need to know how to read a balance sheet and how to um, manage your cash flow and, um, you know, uh, making your case, like when you go into a banker on, um, how you're going to support why what you're asking is a reasonable request. Um, you have to kind of sell yourself um, on that front as well. Um, so as a woman in the industry, um, I, I think I'm lucky in that, you know, I, I, I did not let um, the fact that it's you know, people's comments deter me. I remember when I bought the ground for fiddlesticks and the, the guy who's smoking the big fat cigar who's running the D9 ripping the land and he jumps off and the vineyard manager introduces me as the, you know, patron, the, the owner of the property. And he wanted to know where my husband was. And I mean, I could have been very upset but, um, you know, I found it was a smarter way not to let it phase me and to talk more about what he was finding during ripping um, big boulders in the property than really feed um, an impression that 
that wasn't important really when you get right down to it not not to me or my success so I think how you approach certain there is a lot of discrimination that exists but there is a way to manage certain things um, and there's some things that are just terrible and we still are fighting to change um, high level um, positions in big wineries you know those those are um, you know should should have more women involved and I think we're still trying to make that happen but um, I think there's been much more embracing of uh, women in the field, especially at the, at the um, you know, smaller level and, and small premium level. And no, I don't believe women necessarily have better palates. <laughs> you can ask the same things all the time, you know. And <laughs> I was not going to ask you that, just for the record, I was not going to ask about that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if I need to withdraw later. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you touched a little bit at the end of that answer about, about the changes you've seen for women in the industry. I'm, I'm curious now, uh, for women getting into the industry, is it, is it easier now? Are there more options available? What are the, what are the challenges that remain and it, besides kind of the upper levels of the upper, in, of the upper industry? What are the challenges that remain for women in the, in the wine industry? Well, uh, I don't know, um, in part because uh, I've, I've <laughs> well, uh, let's see. I think um, there, we see, especially in Santa Barbara County, I don't know the numbers in Oregon, but we have a very, at least half, if not more women um, in the industry in, in winemaking positions. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of inroads there. Um, I, I don't know if it's a matter of for women or being a new winery um, to get your story out there, to get the people, the influencers to come and taste your brand and love you and believe in you, you know. Um, in, in sometimes I, I think I should have hired a marketing person um, because I can't do it as often as I need to be doing it. And whether it comes off in this interview or not, I tend to get very shy, <laughs> you know, when I have to, you know, in, in a big group of people I don't know, but, you know, trying to get, say, a, a wine writer to come my way, you know, I tend to be less aggressive. And uh, in, in some sense, you need to you know, let people know you exist. Um, so um, other, other challenges, um, you know, I, I tend to think it's more for as a, you know, new company, new business, new winemaker, um, than a, a woman starting out, um, I think opportunities might be a little bit easier. I mean, my graduating class, I think we had 10 women in the, in the class. So there weren't a lot. Um, I, you know, who knows on what the review system was like on who was getting in and who wasn't getting in. You know, it, it might've been just subconscious decision-making that, Guys were gonna, you know, 
do a better job to make an impact on the industry. I, I really don't know that behind the scenes because it happens in plenty of other boardrooms, right? Um, but, uh, you know, um, I don't know. I, I, I think women can continue to excel by promoting um, our successes. And it's very natural to get a group together because it's interesting to, you know, whether it's a group of winemakers or a group of women, a group of women can help propel the position of women to a more equal basis. Um, I think women tend to be a little bit more sharing of, of details and may help other women be successful where, um, you know, in your exploring and how to grow your company, you, you may not get the same information from everybody. Um, so, you know, I, my challenges are more personal challenges and not, you know, it's running a business and, and I don't think of it as being sort of gender specific. That's totally fair. I don't mean to have you as the representative of all women in the industry. Really just curious for your perspective. I think that was a very, a very interesting one. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I will say that I, um, you know, my friendships are built around that sort of respect thing. And so I tend to have different conversations with um, men and women and I kind of like the matter of fact um, conversations with men better. That's my, that's, that's what gets me to where I want to be. So um, it, again, it's, it's, it's how you, how you deal with people. Now, um, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a good question. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, so I'm curious about your, your, your vineyard. We talked about fiddlesticks a little bit today. Uh, backing up to when you were deciding you wanted to buy a vineyard, tell me about finding the space you were looking for, what you were looking for in it, and, and kind of the potential you saw. And then tell me about, now that you had your own space for the first time, your own grapes for the first time, how did you, how did you want to farm them? How did you want to grow them? And, and has that changed at all in the years since? Yeah, the, that, that question is really important because really the question is, why didn't I buy land in Oregon, right? I mean, this is sort of the purpose of, of this um, conversation. And so um, my, I, I didn't necessarily plan to buy land, but as I mentioned, at one point, um, there was limited opportunity to buy grapes in Santa Barbara County. Um, there were three big vineyards that were selling fruit. I was buying from one of them and it disappeared. And then the other two vineyards didn't have any additional quality fruit available for me. So if I was going to participate and pursue my business plan, I either needed to grow my own or pay exorbitant prices on some new developments. Um, in Oregon, my access to fruit was a little bit different and I loved 
um, the quality of fruit I was getting. I loved the opportunity of working with the grower on, you know, growing for the wine and what collectively we thought was better. Not, you know, it's always the winemaker that wants to spend more money and the grower that wants to grow more fruit, you know. <laughs> so you have to find balance and and owning both, you know, helps you see the light. But um, you know, I, I felt that I really wanted to be making wines from both districts. And so um, because I still had access to Oregon grapes pretty readily, and I didn't in Santa Barbara, that um, that was the reason I began my search for um, ground to grow grapes on. And um, I had actually been buying grapes from Santa Maria Valley, um, not uh, the San Inez Valley, of which Santa Rita Hills is part of. Um, I um, kind of expanded my search by tasting wines from different areas that other people had made. And I had the opportunity to taste some of the very early 70s wine made by Richard Sanford off the Sanford and Benedict Vineyard. And it, um, uh, it, it got me very excited because it was different from Santa Maria. And I, I kind of felt that that would be an exciting direction to go, that these soils imparted spice and depth and, and some real ageability character into the wines with great acidity and you know, so um, I started limiting my search to the cool climate of San Inez Valley, specifically on Santa Rosa Road. And so um, uh, I found this gorgeous flower farm that was not on the market, that was in the right position and exposed. Um, you know, so I needed to go into this by minimizing my vulnerability. You know, I, I needed to say, what, how will I more likely be successful? And I reasoned, well, the famous vineyard across the street is exposed to the same climate, has the same soils, gets the same rainfall, that that might be a, a good way for me to go. So I made an offer on a property that wasn't actually on the market used to be a flower farm uh, um, owned by an old uh, Lompoc family um, called the Bodger family. And um, so um, unfortunately, Santa Barbara County made this area um, a requirement to purchase minimum of, of 100 acre parcels. And I was only looking for 20 acres. <laughs> and so it was a big step for me to decide to make the investment. And there is a lot of interesting history here that I'll only briefly go over. But um, originally, I thought I would so, so Fiddlehead Sellers is set up as a limited partnership. That was part of the learning curve. How am I going to do this? You can't even do a limited partnership anymore. Everyone's an LLC, but I'm an LP. And in fact, when the PPP um, uh, loan funding came out, 
none of the forms could accommodate a limited partnership. So I had to jump through a lot of hoops because I've been in business for too long. But in any way, I try, I decided I would try expanding the um, winery business to include the vineyard and realize the vineyard is so big that the way I could operate more successfully would be to separate the vineyard into a separate business and look for a winery partner to share in half of the fruit, which is what I did. And it's a very unusual partnership because I'm a very small winery, um, uh, but I partnered with a very big winery because they were the only ones that could afford it. But I wrote the business plan, uh, the, the uh, uh, partnership agreement, so that it would benefit everything I wanted to do, which was to never have to compromise the growing, um, any growing decisions in order to accomplish what I wanted to for Fiddlehead. Um, and also have the benefit of living on the property. And I am the manager, so I ultimately make all the decisions. Um, but it, it became another part of my life that I never expected, which is to have to manage a whole vineyard and worry about selling grapes in order for Fiddlehead just to get grapes. So if I were to do it again, some days I wish I could have just found those 20 acres and um, be because my life, you know, expanded to have to be involved in knowing about tractors and frost alarms and um, yeah, uh, <laughs> irrigation systems and, um, you know, just, um, it's all really interesting and I super love it. And being a grower is fantastic, but on a large scale, um, you know, we have to be, we have to worry, a, a, a recent worry is, be, remember we're in the, the cool, windy climate of the Santa Rita Hills, but we now have a cannabis neighbor that has a very strict requirement of uh, uh, chemical usage uh, for, for like mildew sprays. Um, and sometimes they're not always compatible. And so you have to worry about neighborhood relationships and county regulations. And so it's a big thing <laughs> that's became on my plate. Um, and it's, um, uh, you know, how can we make this work um, knowing that I had been around for, you know, 25 years and someone who moved in four months ago is, is leading my life. Um, so, um, so sometimes I do think that, um, you know, I never wanted to expand, expand the quantity of the brand. I always wanted to stay small so I could stay involved. Um, but um, that didn't quite happen on the vineyard end, but, but there, it, it's hard to make, you know, the amount of time you have to put into it, it, it's hard to make the dollars work if you don't continually expand. So it's part of the business that you need to understand. 
And you mentioned that part of that is that you're you're the manager of the of those hundred acres. So so tell me about uh, the farming practices then from 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 the beginning where you where you focus on a certain type of farming practice yeah. that evolved. So it's not just farming practices. It's um, you know ultimately I have final approval of everything, and you have to decide what do you want to participate in to be part of the decision making process. What are you going to um, rely on someone else for and um, because of their expertise. And so I was um, pretty involved in sort of the development and the design work um, like row direction and trellis type and you know cross arms and end posts and uh, clonal material um, and um, then there were things that I knew less about, like the various nurseries. I actually planted, I, um, I chose to build and um, plant in phases. And one of the nurseries I used was an Oregon nursery for diversification. So part, I, one of the things that I didn't mention here that I used to talk about a lot is that by making wine in two places, that it broadens your access to things like suppliers or solutions to a common problem. And, and um, like, like, you know, a good punch down tool um, that was fabricated, you know, could be a, a, a local supplier, but if you did have, you know, several options, you know, I have very different options that I have um, really enjoyed having. Um, so, so planting questions and clonal material, all of that came from having access to, to two distinct places that are both trying to grow great Pinot Noir. Um, so, um, uh, so there's key things that I want to be involved in. Um, Pruning is one. How well, you know, going way back, it's it's the training. Um, what spacing are you going to have, and why? And there's some logistical things. I remember my um, vineyard manager saying, "We cannot go lower to the ground because I'm going to have lawsuits from our pickers with back injuries." And I mean, who would have thought that's a limitation? <laughs> But insurance, you know, it was a limitation. And um, so, so you, you have your wish list and, um, and then you have your, your practical compromises that you have to make. And then, you know, sometimes you just get input, for instance, the road direction from that very successful vineyard across the street was a due east-west vine row for no other reason than that was the way that it was done in the early 70s. And so I could benefit from making changes by learning from what they did um, and trying to raise the bar by, you know, being across the street only with a better road direction. <laughs> But um, so those, those decisions, you know, I had to approve where to put in sprinklers um, for frost protection, where to, to invest in wind machines for frost protection. Um, 
And then as your vines grow up, I mean, little things like, are you going to get milk cartons or plastic grow tubes? Are you going to get tall vines or the traditional vines? And, um, uh, you know, ultimately I'm the decider, but I try to gather information to help me make good decisions. Um, now it's important for me to be, you know, as we fast forward to a mature vineyard, to be um, involved in um, different stages of, of the vineyard, um, like pruning, um, because um, in some places it was a good choice. We, we ran a little experiment and found it was a good choice to convert some of our cane train vines to a, a cordon system. Um, but uh, pruning for the selection of the right wood is really important and um, not pushing vines to be what they're not and when to replace vines, all of those things are important. Um, shoot thinning is important to me um, because it affects crop load and also distribution of fruit across the cane. Um, leaf tucking is important because there's shading, potential shading, um, breakage of canes that I worry about in a windy site. Um, so part of living on the property helps me observe on a daily basis, but also if I'm traveling, there are key times that I want to be there. Um, uh, leafing for fruit um, exposure is a, another big time that I want to be in the vineyard. And um, I usually want to be in the vineyard when we're counting our clusters so I can sort of make an assessment of, you know, we've always adjusted our, we, we've never pushed the vineyard to be what it can be, but rather reduced crop to be what we think will make quality wine. So that is, you know, relates back to money again and our cost of farming. Um, and then of course, um, you know, foration and, and, uh, and ripe fruit, you know, watching the maturation process, um, looking for evenness of ripening, um, even from the time of bud break, um, which is one of the things I like to brag about at Fiddlesticks. Um, and, you know, down the vine route, it all looks the same, whether you go up a hill or no matter where you are, it's, it's so important to ultimately having evenness in the fruit that you, that you harvest. Um, and then um, during harvest, of course, I like to, you know, people tend to ask, when do you pick? <laughs> they want to hear a bricks number. Um, and I have found a way to um, share that there are probably 15 important parameters that you want to target in the vineyard that you want to get as many as you can to make your harvest decision. So it could be ground seeds, it could be lignification, it could be you know the lack of tendril growth, it could be the softening of the berry. It could be, um, uh, you know, there's so many things. Um, and that 
that um, if you, you know, obviously flavor, that's probably number one. <laughs> How could I miss that? And probably number 15 or 16 is bricks because, which is important because of alcohol conversion, but, you know, we have other tools and also some, you know, it's, it's a balance. And I'm telling you, the more sugar you have, it will always taste delicious with more sugar. I mean, that's what table grapes are all about, but it's not always what makes a better wine grape. And so, um, you know, um, recording all of those assessments over time help you to almost feel the assessment when you're in the, in the vineyard, um, you know, it becomes very natural. Um, so, um, so I'm around a lot in, you know, in both places, but also I have to say in Oregon, you know, now with um, camera phones and, you know, if someone is shoot thinning, you can take a picture and it can get to someone in, you know, a second and you can say, yeah, that's just what I'm looking for. Um, so that um, there are ways to, to do remote things, except of course, taste the grapes. Someday soon we'll have that too, I hope. We can just, you can just teleport those grapes to you. I hope we never have that because there are people <laughs> who wanna, you know, they wanna measure the, you know, 25 things in wine and say, let's just throw it to you. Okay, and, and so these are the things you can measure and there's your good wine. Like, I just don't wanna ever embrace that, ever. <laughs> I'm still romantic when it comes to, um, you know, taste it, feel it, um, uh, think about it, uh, all of that. Not, it, it's a, it's a 12, you know, a 12 for, for this parameter and a 15 for this parameter. And so what do you think? <laughs> yeah. Is it going to be good? I, I hope we, we do not go there or a fiddlehead never goes there. That, that's the artistic part of your brain talking clearly. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Right, right. So earlier on, you, you talked about your, your wine making and what you found important in wine was, was texture and structure. Um, tell me about developing that. You, and you mentioned Pinot Noir and Sauvignon Blanc both being similarly structured and textured. So tell me about developing that and, and, and what you're aiming for in a structure and texture in a wine of yours. So um, one is that I was kind of lucky to inherit my mother's palate, who was actually um, a chef in her day, a home economist. And, um, but I have a very sensitive palate. Um, and um, so that part is kind of easy for me, but um, it, it, part of this can be learned by doing tastings of components and um, I always love tastings that looked at low, high, and middle concentrations of things like alcohol and water or acid or tannins um, and um, doing a lot of descriptive analysis. Not so much, um, you know, it's part of a conversation um, in part so you can communicate to buyers, but but also so you can define what you like and what you're trying to achieve. So um, again, it goes back to, they don't have to all be the same, but if you can tie in something you're doing 
in the field with how something is tasting, which is, isn't always universally like, you know, it's sort of what is your brand all about, um, then it, it's important to be able to define those things. Um, so um, for me, uh, everyone talks about a lot of buzzwords, you know, balance and um, balanced is a big one. And, and for me, balance is important. And what it means is that the intensity and concentration of the components are compatible with each other. So no one component overrides another one. So you don't want necessarily a certain um, TA. You want a TA that is in check with the pH and the fruit and the tannin structure. Um, and so maybe the greatest thing that I learned is how to translate what happens in the vineyard to, um, to, to what happens in the wine. Um, so you learn when to pick. Like you learn that maybe when, when, when you start seeing a certain rate of increase of pH, that that is going to maybe force you to do acidulations that you don't want to do. And as I mentioned, the, the higher sugars often taste good, but, um, but a, a very, in Pinot Noir especially, um, where the alcohol dominates. Uh, you know, alcohol also creates a certain weight to a wine when you do these these um, component tastings, you can learn that alcohol has viscosity and a sweet spot to it. So it isn't just because it's alcohol that might perceive, be perceived as a burn. It's the concentration of the alcohol in a particular wine and how all the components feed into it and around it. And so, um, so my objectives are always, it, it's very interesting because Sauvignon Blanc's um, a, a good example. I make three distinct styles of Sauvignon Blanc. Um, they're all made from grapes grown in Happy Canyon, uh, uh, AVA in the area, officially known Happy Canyon of Santa Barbara. That's the official AVA where I was buying grapes you know, seven years before the Appalachian existed. Um, a really cool, uh, exciting spot. But what I learned is that because we have warm days, that um, the pyrazines, the thing that make the, the grape taste herbaceous or smell herbaceous, dissipate in, um, in this warmer environment. And with... Um, more advanced viticultural techniques that we use now where we expose the clusters through different trellis systems and leaf pulling that we also um, degrade the pyrazines. And so you end up with a grape flavor that's more based on a fruit flavor, you know, peaches and pears and pineapple. Um, 
And this particular district has that fog that rolls in that I mentioned earlier that helps retain acidity. Um, so when it gets hot, it doesn't stay hot. And so you have these warm days and cool nights. So I learned, I love Sauvignon Blanc, but I learned that Bordeaux Sauvignon Blanc is very different from Sauvignon Blanc of the Loire Valley and very different from New Zealand, say. And I tried to define, I, I like to think about, I have in my head where I wanna end up, but I make the wine backwards. In other words, first you look at how do these people get this, how, how do these districts get their structure? What do they do? What is their winemaking technique? Is there anything else I should try? And so you end up doing a bunch of experiments and blends. And so I know where I want to end up. And sometimes copying, say, old world producer doesn't get me there, but it was a first step. So for example, I make a wine that is all stainless fermented, that is much more like a new world wine, more tropical flavors, um, bright, crisp acidity. But I always say that that alcohol level, which is, you know, it's like 13 maybe, maybe a little under, but it adds viscosity to the wine. So you have weight on the mid palate. So I don't want the acid to be too sharp and too grippy. I want it to be uh, 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 add to the weight of the wine. Not heavy, but um, so all these wines are non-malolactic. So I look for texture that is, is kind of from the grape in the winemaking process rather than um, introducing, um, you know, a malolactic process. So the second wine is the like opposite one is all barrel fermented um, and selected from new oak, but very intentionally selected, like based on aromatics and how the, the oak tannins meld with um, the grape tannins and and um, so I'm looking for something that is a little more savory, definitely less fruity. Um, and the perception of acidity is reduced, even though the reality is it's So it, it is, uh, the perception's reduced because of the, how the wine interacts with, with the oak. And I give this wine um, about, eight or nine months in the barrel, but then I give it several years of bottle age to disguise the oak presence. And I mean, seriously, people say, is there any oak on this? And, and so it's all about the package and the, that structure is very different from the stainless fermented. So the third one that I do is a, a, a combination, a hybrid, where it's about a third aged in stainless to get a certain fruit brightness and perception of acidity, and a third aged in new French oak to get the weight, but then a third is in neutral oak that kind of acts as a liaison between the extremes. And it reminds me more of a wine maybe out of the Loire Valley. It's a, you know, it's a tamer wine. It's 
hugely versatile with all kinds of food because it's a very layered wine. And it's, um, it's, it's less domestic in appearance. You know, it's kind of has a little maybe French twist to it is how I think about it. Same with the, the so, so I call um, the stainless one gooseberry because of its brightness. Um, it's not as extreme as a New Zealand wine, but that is commonly used to describe Sauvignon Blanc in New Zealand. And I call the barrel fermented one honeysuckle because it reminds me of the richness. And then I named the, the, the hybrid one um, after the district where the grapes are grown. So happy canyon or the happy one. <laughs> anyway, so when I talk about style and, and balance and structure and texture, that's a great example of how you can have different texture that's all balanced in different ways. And you can do the same thing with Pinot Noir. I mean, I do um, barrel select wines, but, but it, they, the barrels have to go together. You can't just pick a great barrel for one component. And that's what I try to do. I, I, my wine named after the mile marker needs to reflect the character of the place, but it has to be an assemblage of the wines made from that vintage that give it um, aromatics, mid-palate texture, and finish. And I probably give more importance to the finish because I think it's harder to achieve. Aromatics are easy, you ferment it cold, you give it new oak, but a wine that persists on the palate, that lingers on the palate, that makes you want to take that next sip, it's a much harder wine to make. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, about Oregon now, and I, I'm curious about, um, you, you, you mentioned kind of your initial impression, you, you got grapes here from, from Yamhill Valley in the early 90s. Uh, tell me about your first impression of the grapes and, and the wines that were coming out of the Wyoming Valley and, and, and what made you so excited to pursue them, uh, and also what you've seen change uh, up here in the, in, the, in the quality and the style and uh, in, in the time you've been working with Oregon grapes. So one of the things that Stephen Carey did for me was he, he would present me with, you know, cases of wines of some of the growers he represented. It was a way I could, you know, expand my palate. And um, I was pretty excited about just learning all this new stuff um, and taste more wines. Remember, I was, I was kind of in the heart of cab country at the time. And um, so, and then the other really exciting sort of opportunity was when I uh, wanted to commit, you know, it was easy to get Yam Hill fruit, which was actually tough to work with. It was pretty tannic site. Um, but being, being local, you know, I was around in Oregon a lot. And it really helps you appreciate sort of the direction of vintages and meet the people and see what, um, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of friendships that were forged by just being in Oregon at that time. I, I'm sad I, when I moved my production, I could not stay in touch as much. And so a lot of the next generation, I'm just less familiar with. But a lot of the 
you know, growers from the 80s and 90s and 2000, early 2000s, I, I, I like, yeah, I mean, just good friends. Um, and it gave me a chance to also kind of taste wines and learn about where I could experiment with fruit. And we're not talking about a lot of fruit, you know, two to five tons, maybe, or a couple tons here, a couple tons there, and expand. Um, and um, I never wanted to necessarily do this, have the same conversation that I have with my uh, Santa Barbara growers. Um, it was about what I was seeing and tasting in Oregon and trying to learn that sweet spot on when to pick to make special wines. Um, and I learned quickly when I used too much oak or when I did too much extraction or when I released too early. I mean, those were the kinds of things that I think my presence in Oregon um, assisted um, to drive better winemaking. Um, and, you know, I had to make sure that I wasn't necessarily making my wines the same way as Yam Hill Valley Vineyards because, you know, I was using their equipment and I just need to uh, make sure I was making fiddlehead wines on, on my terms. And I was grateful for that flexibility. Very, very grateful. Um, and um, I, I, you know, I liked, a, you know, some vineyards I lost to other winemakers, um, as we mentioned earlier, and some vineyards I found were less um, appropriate for my blend, for what I wanted to do. And it was, as I mentioned, very exciting to cross paths with David Namarnik because sort of on one site, I was able to capture diversity and also have, um, you know, he was very accommodating on picking when I wanted to and sorting through the fruit as his pickers picked. And, you know, we did it a little bit differently than maybe he did it for his other people. And um, I, I continue to be, I was, have always been and will forever continue to hugely promote um, the, the success of the wines I, I could make in Oregon. Not to the exclusion of what I could also do in Santa Barbara. And I, I, I say that because um, one, one really is not better than the other. I, on the grand scheme, I, I really believe that. And I'm not sure enough people, you know, believe that, but that's why I'm here. You know, I, I try to promote that and encourage people to taste more Oregon wines if they only know a certain region. Um, I think the wines, I think there's my observations over 25 years, I would say, 30 years, um, that um, there are more better winemakers. Now, I think that, that there's a, a greater pool of very high quality wines. And I think our, everybody's challenge is to make um, 
you know, good quality, inexpensive wines. I think A to Z has done a really good job with that. And, um, you know, there's others. I just I know the challenge and trying to restrict crop and um, trying to think like what, who's your customer? What is your price point? Because there's huge demand for uh, a, a lower price point of Pinot Noir. Um, you know, people will drink a lot more of it. And so we don't want it to be just be a lower price point because we can't sell in the higher price point. We want to make a lower price point that is very delicious and has the transparency that we like about Pinot Noir and the layers and the, the balance and the texture, you know. And Pinot Noir, the great thing about it is, is its transparency. It's, it's easy for people to fall in love with that. Um, and, and that's why, um, you know, I, um, I think balance is important. And because it's so transparent, the equipment we use and the skin contact and all of that matters a lot more than it does th than um, other red varietals, for instance. Um, I, there are certain techniques that I, I don't embrace. Um, you know, it doesn't mean they're not right. It's just, for instance, um, the use of aeration techniques during winemaking. Um, you know, air pulses and um, that I, I don't incorporate. Um, but it's always, you know, if it, if it, it's great for other people and helps wines, you know, now, now I feel that um, where it used to be that we loved wines that aged a long time, the market demands early release of wines. Um, so my big complaint is wines are released too early, meaning they're too fruity or they're too acidic or they're too disjointed. And um, uh, I think there's been a push and we have learned how to make better wines with early release. But I would say, that's a big challenge right now because I do not like a lot of really young wines because they're just not ready yet. Um, so whether you're forced to release them early because of financial reasons or because that's what everyone else is doing or because the wine writer wants to review only those wines, which is another challenge that I think that um, we, um, you know, need to learn more, more about that to make wines that are released that don't taste, taste like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I hate aerators. So it has to be with the whole package of when we're picking, how long it's in barrel, all of that matters. So um, what do you see for yourself as you look ahead now? You, we've talked a little bit about kind of the future for your business. What, what's, what's next for you? And, and what are you kind of hoping for, looking forward to in the coming years? Well, I think I'm looking forward to getting out of the pandemic <laughs> and socializing some because our business is very social and it's, um, 
it's uh, not the same when you do a Zoom tasting or a Zoom dinner. <laughs> I mean, it really isn't. And you have to raise your hand to ask a question. Um, so that's something on the horizon. Um, you know, we're in agriculture, so there's always forever evolving. There's better spray equipment that, you know, we're working with um, that captures the spray and recycles the spray. I think that's, you know, working with new tools is, is a great thing. Um, I try to, you know, share what I've learned with um, other new winemakers. Um, so I try to get involved in education um, and uh, consulting. Um, I think those are, are, are good transitions for me. And part of it is who the heck knows, you know, because <laughs> I really don't know what's on the horizon. But, um, you know, I've always lived in a dynamic environment where sometimes something lands in my lap and um, it's a good idea. So, um, you know, I'll tell you tomorrow. <laughs> I, I'm going to now I'm going to call you every day and ask you what the future holds. And you can just keep, right. telling, keep telling me. All right, so last question for you, as, as, as you look back over what you've accomplished, is there something you're particularly proud of, a, a moment or an accomplishment that you look back on with, with, with kind of a fondness? Hmm. I think I uh, try to remember um, the breadth and depth of, of the education that has come to me over the years. Even though I'm challenged every day, I think it's sometimes I shake my head because I know more than the truckers or the, you know, I, I mean, sometimes I'm amazed at what has sunk into my brain, which is kind of fun. Um, and I think I think um, the connection to my uh, customers, the, the connection to being able to share a bottle of wine and tell stories and solve problems, um, I, I think that's a, a wonderful greater purpose that I you know, look forward to doing in many, many years to come when maybe I'm not making wine anymore. And so I don't know if it's that I get to enjoy the wines I've made or that I've learned what are like really great wines I want to enjoy. Don't have to be expensive. You know, I mean, um, me the memories um, by, by tasting wine and, and by creating wine um, is something that I'm, I'm very proud of. And, you know, we didn't discuss how my brand has evolved. There's the little, you know, special labels. My sister is an artist and I have an artist series that I, I love to share with people for the Gruner and, and my high-end Doyle. Um, you know, it, 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 I, I try to share a lot of my story on my website so that the people I can't talk to directly, they have resources and tools. Um, but, but like I said, oftentimes it's me who's picking up the phone. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's part of that, that I, um, I hope people will remember in, in me.
Um, there isn't one single line that I want to say, oh my God, this went to the White House. And the, I did have an Oregon line as well that went. And I just, uh, that's great. But ultimately, that isn't what I want to think is the feather in my cap. Um, I, I think the camaraderie and relationships I've had over the years is um, what is most special for me. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, it's all the questions that I have for you. Obviously, we, we could we could keep talking forever and ever. This is great. But is there anything else that I, I didn't ask that I should have or anything else you wanted to talk about before before we wrap this up? Um, let's see. Um, I think the only thing I didn't mention is that, uh, you know, Obviously, the very early years I did this alone, but um, I do have some employees, and um, it's uh, a, another challenge for me because I'm such a driven person um, that, um, you know, there's always something to do, and I'm a pretty demanding um, employer, and but I give a lot of credit to the assistance that I've been given over the years. And um, I'm appreciative, but at the same time, regretful that I have, you know, my uh, drive has, has, uh, you know, had to be part of their lives as well. <laughs> and, you know, it's just maybe a good time for me to say thank you to everyone who's helped me along the way taught me lessons and helped me um, in all aspects of the business. I think my employees um, really should be given a, a giant thank you. And I hope in years to come, they get to hear that from me. Fantastic. I love that. What a great way to wrap it up. That's, that's really excellent. Um, Thank you so much, Kathy. This was wonderful. It was great to talk to you and get your story. And we appreciate you being willing to sit with us for the project. Um, uh, we are gonna we're gonna let you off the hook. If you want to hang around for a second, we can chat a little bit off camera if you're if you're if you still have a moment. But yeah, uh, let's let's do that. I, I okay. really appreciate this opportunity and my love for Oregon um, is emboldened by that you reached out to me and can incorporate um, my participation into this um, history review. So thank you for that deeply. You're very welcome. I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording now. Thank you again. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.